What stories can a dead body tell? Death has been a taboo and it's something that many people don't want to talk about. But when it comes to wars or catastrophic events where there are casualties involved, there are many things that we can learn from a dead body. So there are people, like my guest for this podcast, that try to get a different perspective to the topic of death and its study. Death is a very like sensitive topic, it's almost a taboo for many people or many societies. But by learning the history of a dead individual, especially in the cases where there are individuals missing, individuals that have been denied their identity during like a warfare, for example, that have been uh, buried in mass graves, so they cannot be recovered or found. This gives motivation to, for, to people to want to investigate this and find, let's say, the truth, find the history behind like a dead body. So basically, we want to give the identity to, to a missing person. Um, we want to put, like, let's say, a more personal, warm, let's say, touch to a dead body and show that the dead body is more than that. And this is also useful in the cases where there are human rights violations. So the bodies of the dead have been altered in various ways mutilated they have been so this is a way to strip people for their identity um we can show evidence of the way they the manner of death and this is, can be potentially used in criminal cases in the court in cases where the perpetrator is uh, uh, goes in a trial for for example crimes against humanity so we want to show people that um, how to put it, like blank words, that um, the, the, even if something is, stays hidden, it cannot stay hidden for a very, very long time. Although this, it's not always the case, but the, the fact that the dead say tales is not entirely, like, it's not just a, you know, it's a truth. So we can see many things, we can find out many things from the human remains. And there is also this trend for, of people and experts that want to show to the world that death can, is a very like a sad topic, but it doesn't need to be a taboo. On the other end of the internet line is Ms. Vasiliki Luka, a PhD candidate from the University of Leicester in the UK, and she has a seemingly strange PhD topic. My name is Vasiliki Luka, and I'm a Midlands for Cities PhD candidate at the University of Leicester in the, at the UK. My research focuses on the violence for um, armed conflicts, so I'm doing a case study of historical conflict and more modern conflicts from Spain and Greece. And I'm focusing, I'm mostly interested on the skeletal trauma analysis. Ms. Luca was curious and interested about death and the stories that that body can tell from a very young age. If you're wondering what exactly can be the lived experience of a child that ends up doing this type of fascinating research, I was wondering that as well. Since I was little, I liked creepy stuff. 
creepy fairy tales, creepy, uh, mostly real histories of people dying either in a historical context or, you know, from wars, from that's stories from wars from grandparents and stuff like that. Then uh, from the movies, my very first encounter with this kind of context was not like CSI or anything, it was the bone collector. Uh, so, and you maybe realize, oh, that is very cool. I would like to do this. This would be very interesting. I was like in very, very young, extremely young, like before undergrad. Um, but I like puzzles. I like uh, riddles. And I like the fact that the, I don't take this as a riddle because this is still a person. But by solving a riddle, by solving a puzzle, let's say, and combining other stuff, because this is not a game, you can come up to a conclusion and enable people to find the identity of an individual that's been missing, find the perpetrator. So, yeah, um, this kind of weird interest of a child ended up being like a profession and topic of research. So, my good humans... Today's edition of the podcast has to do with forensic anthropology. You are listening to Lefteris Ask Science, a science podcast that aims to create stories from the research happening in academia today. If you would like to support me and continue to do this, consider subscribing to my Patreon page that you can find in the description of the show. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter and find me on the Twitter at Lefteris underscore asks. On with the topic at hand now. In technical terms, Ms. Luca's work has to do with an osteometric association of commingled remains. In simpler words, osteometric means geometric measurements of bones, and commingled means bones that are not in anatomical position and mixed together. Like in cases of conflicts or some natural disasters that have resulted in mass casualties, there is a possibility that there will be bodies mixed together and it will be the responsibility of someone to figure out the number of people there and also collect the remains of those people. As you can understand, this might get very tricky. If we take a commingled context um, and we uh, recover, like, say, a mass grave, um, as first, we recover the remains following uh, archaeological and anthropological protocols. Then we uh, divide the remains based on uh, whether and see whether they are all human or there are animal remains. So if there are any animal remains, we remove those. We keep the human remains and then we are trying to deduce the minimum number of individuals that are in that particular assemblage. So we're trying to figure out basically, more or less, how many individuals approximately are in the sample represented by either the element that's in, that that presents the maximum number, say, right femur. So if we have 10 left femora, 12 right femora, and other bones on lower numbers, the minimum number of individuals is 12. So then we are trying to figure out, if we can, what bone belongs to what individual. So we are trying to make a reassociation of the human remains and attribute them to to an individual within the sample. This can be easier when we have identifying features that indicate indicators that help us associate. For example, if there is like a pathology on one bone, say on upper arm, 
and spreads to the, this area, we can probably see associate the bones that are on the same side and see that maybe they belong to the same individual because they might have the same suffer from the same condition. Other times, it might not be possible. We also not always rely on the coloring of the bones because this can be misleading. So there are cases where the bones might not be fully buried and there is partial discoloration from the sun, for example, and then partial discoloration from the environment of burial. And then we take into account a variety of factors that help us uh, coming to a conclusion. But there are times that we cannot always attribute the bones to a specific individual. And then we just study uh, what we have individually. The reason for such actions is very important. Families will obviously want to have the remains of their loved ones to pay the proper respect. But there are more reasons as to why identifying is important and forensic anthropologies need to work in a very timely manner. You want to somewhat uh, know the story, but not the same way osteoarchaeologists do, because in forensic anthropology, you have a time constraint. Um, so you need to do everything relatively, be relatively fast, have, be timely, and complete the analysis, especially if you have many, many individuals, you have big assemblages, like in the large mass graves, where you have to basically try and complete everything within a certain amount of time, uh, especially if you have weather, the weather against you. When the remains are transferred to the lab, then yes, maybe you have a little bit more time to spend on the analysis, but when there is pressure from either police or you know other uh, institutions, then you generally want to finish as accurately or objectively as possible the analysis. So yeah, uh, it's it's important. You want to either include or rule out specific scenarios because not every assemblage is necessarily a, fo a forensic case. It might just be like, this can be seen like in old cemeteries where they leave remains in big pits and they just let them there. Um, so this might be a case where the remains are not like a forensic porno, so they don't bear any trauma, they're not the result of a homicide or like another violent crime, and they're just there. So now that we have explained the commingled aspects of the research, it's time to find out exactly what are the measurements that Miss Lucat did in order to create a statistical model and try to relate different bones together. For the cranium, I focused on the occipital bone, which is back and basal cranium and the areas I used in particular from the occipital were the occipital condyles that are around the foramen magnum. Foramen magnum is that large hole at the base of the cranium and the condyles are the two little puffy things that are on both sides of the hole, the foramen magnum. Um, so, uh, I also, I took me measurements uh, of various dimensions around that area that are in direct contact or correlate with the um, corresponding surfaces of the atlas, which is the first cervical vertebra. So the first vertebra that forms the neck, basically. So the way the occipital bone and occipital condyles 
touch, let's say, articulate with the atlas, this area is of interest because they are in direct contact. So, and for the same reason, I also did the same for the inferior part of the atlas that comes into contact with the superior part of the axis. So the second, second cervical vertebra that forms the neck. So the areas of contact are of interest and showed us that there is a correlation that can show that if we have five atlases, let's say, for example, and four crania or how many crania you have, or again, atlases and axis, you can make a correlation, make take measurements, put those in the model and make... Uh, come into uh, like a number of matches that indicate uh, that this atlas and this axis belong to the same individual or this cranium and atlas belong to the same individual. Again, you might have, for example, more than two bones belonging to the same individual that are the same. And then you have to start, you know, taking out matches and use also uh, other methods in order to come to a final number of matches. I don't know about you, but when Ms. Luca mentioned measurements, I initially thought of some chemical analysis that would indicate matches between the bones. But to no one's surprise, I was wrong. I used a, a digital caliper and took my measurements in millimeters. There were quite many. Uh, to be fair, like I think more than 20, uh, including left and right measure measurements to see whether there is like a prevalence of one side or the other. But a statistical analysis didn't show statistical significance between one side or the other. Um, and also there weren't any changes for the sex of the individuals. So, and uh, we use those uh, on in SPSS and then we created the models using linear regression analysis. It's important to note that even though the goal of the research is to be used with mixed remains, the initial parts of the research happen with a large reference sample of remains in order to derive the statistical model. You need to have a reference sample to establish, to make your equations, so to make your statistical models. This was done uh, because, um, so the models were done with uh, linear regression analysis. So these were formed based on a larger um, skeletal sample. Then we, they were tested on a smaller artificial commingled assemblage that we did in order to test the repeatability and, and applicability of the equations we made with the reference sample. As Ms. Lucas stated, she took tens of measurements and hundreds of samples, and the goal was to compare different dimensions in different parts of the cranium and the upper parts of the spine in order to come up with a model that correlates these parts. For each combination she tried, she did come up with equations that describe the relationship, but the accuracy of these models is not the same. So we need to have some statistical values that give us confidence in these equations. As she has mentioned a couple of times already, she used linear regression that basically aims to explain a correlation between two parameters x and y using a linear equation of the form of y equals a times x plus b. And the values that help us evaluate how good these equations are, are called R-squared, plain R, and SEE. -E. 
the R square is uh, defined as the measure of how well a linear regression model fits the data. Basically, it can be interpreted, can be explained as the proportion of variance of the outcome psi explained by the linear regression model. So the linear regression, our linear regressions are models in the form of psi equal to ax plus beta. And the, the r, so plain r, is called correlation coefficient, which is a, defined as a measure that quantifies the strength of the linear relationship between the two variables. In those models, when we establish, establish the models, the, depending on what we're going to do on SPSS, we set uh, dependent and independent variables to see which one will be psi and which one will be x, for example. The SE, the other thing we take into consideration, and we want it to be relatively low. The standard error of the estimate uh, represents basically the average distance of the observed values that the observed values fall from the regression line. So there we basically have a linear regression. Like, so we follow line. And the standard error represents the distance of that point, so the value, from the straight line. The error also depends on the size uh, you measure. So if you have a measurement of 10 millimeters, if you have an error of 4, there you can see that you have a significant distance of the, ax the, the value from the line, line of the linear regression. So you have a significant difference, let's say, a, a deviation from the line of the regression. If you have survived the mathematics heavy portion of the episode, congratulations. You will now be rewarded with more questions about human anatomy. Ms. Luca examined the associations between the first two vertebrae on the top of your spine and the lower part of the cranium. But are those the only parts of the human skeleton that could be associated in order to help identify parts of the same skeleton? Other combinations have been, um, have been investigated and there are already publications. Uh, the second author uh, has tested uh, lower limbs uh, for, their, for the same exact purpose, to, for their association of commingled remains. And they came into search of equations for reassociating lower limbs. So we decided to do a cranium and first a second cervical vertebra because the cranium is also a big part in the um, uh, sex determination, age estimation, and ancestry or population affinity uh, for the establishment of the biological profile. So we use the, the cranium to see, to establish the identity of the individual along with other methods focusing on other anatomical areas. Um, the cranium is also very useful into the cranial, into the facial reconstruction. So we want to be sure when we attribute a cranium to a specific individual, we want to be sure that this cranium belongs 90% or whatever to that particular individual. So we can, this will help us with the identity. Because any mistakes in attributing the right bone, the, a, a, a skeletal element, to the right the individual that it belongs, might delay the investigation in a case and cause some other 
complications with the analysis. And that's it for another edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I would like to thank Mrs. Luca for her time and wish her best of luck in her future work. Of course, a big thank you to my good humans with a cape on Patreon, Sofia Shanko and Sylvie Heck. If you would like to get your own shout-out or even just support me, visit my Patreon link in the description. Another way you can support me is just sharing this episode on your social media. Thank you for listening until the end. Until the next episode, take care, keep learning, and be kind. <laughs>